and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel and greetings from my house because where the hell else would I be these days? And I hope you are in your house as well or somewhere safe. Um, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about craft beer and the national census. Are beer and the census natural topical bedfellows? No, no, I can't say that they are, but hey, these are strange times and we're just going to roll with it. And uh, first, speaking of these strange times that we're in, um, for me, one of the most surreal things about this moment in history that we're living through is how so many people around the world are going through hell right now, while others of us just kind of are in this dimension that we're now calling the new normal. For those of us who are not sick or are not healthcare professionals on the front lines or grocers or other critical retailers or essentials of the supply chain, we're just hunkered down while others are fighting for their lives or sacrificing themselves to help save others and earn a living. But obviously, the most important and best thing many of us can do right now to fight this pandemic is to stay home. But for many people, staying at home is a disaster because they can't earn a living, which is why you've seen in the last month, the country's unemployment rate has tumbled from a 50-year low in February to the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. Unemployment by context, uh, to give you some context here, unemployment during the Great Depression reached about 25% at its peak. And during the Great Recession, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, unemployment rate hit about 10%. And according to an article in the New York Times on Friday, the jobless rate today is, quote, almost certainly higher than at any point since the Great Depression. We think it's around 13% and rising at a speed unmatched in American history, end quote. So, for those of us who can work from home, the second best thing we can do after staying home is probably to support those who can't. Staying home doesn't mean being idle if you're working from home and your income stream hasn't been disrupted. The most patriotic thing you can do right now is to help support those that are very vulnerable financially. Order delivery or curbside carryout from some of your favorite restaurants, or as you're going to learn about later in this episode, Order some beer from one of your local breweries. Watch a musician perform on a Facebook Live and give them a tip in their virtual tip jar. Continue to pay house cleaning services even if they're not coming to your house. Small acts can have big outcomes and anything you can do to help people from the safety of your home is a good thing and it's good for the economy that we're all responsible for and vulnerable to. One of the other things that has struck me at work over these last few weeks and really impressed me is how we're marching on and we're not being idle. I've been so proud of my friends and colleagues and our clients who are soldiering on and still staying focused on doing their jobs and being there for one another. So in that spirit, we're not going to talk all COVID all the time here. In the coming weeks and months, it's going to be a constant theme. There's no question about that, but it can't be everything and bring everything to a halt. And to that point, two things that America still needs right now are beer, which we can still drink together with our friends on Zoom, and the national census, which is ironically being conducted at a time when our population is facing a formidable adversary in the form of a pandemic. 
So in honor of Census Day, which was last week, and National Beer Day, which is this week, today, in fact, April 7th, let's learn a little bit more about beer, uh, specifically craft beer, and the history of the census. So first, a little bit of background on beer. Uh, Did you know that fermented beer goes back as far as at least 6,000 years ago where it was brewed in China? And in fact, legend has it that beer was first brewed by the wife of Yu the Great. And indeed, women played a prominent role in the early history of beer. The ancient Sumerians had a goddess of brewing, Ninkasi. And later on, during the era of the Vikings, Norse society women were the exclusive brewers, and all brew house equipment was the property of women. There's also evidence that women comprised the majority of brewers in England until at least the 13th century. And according to historians, beer was an important part of the income of English households during that Middle Age era. When these alewives, as they were known, had extra beer, they would hang a sign that was called an ale stake, as in S-T-A-K-E, not S-T-E-A-K, over their front door. Um, Google it. It comes right up. And I'm, I'm also thinking ale steak could be a great name for a beer if no one's ever trademarked that. Anyway, beer then became professionalized over time, and the first professional brewers were monks. Uh, because monasteries functioned as inns. And beer was really popular, uh, particularly because it was safer than water, literally. Beer then became professionalized, and monks were the first brewers because monasteries functioned as inns. Beer was safer than water back then, literally. And as it became more professional, guilds began to appear in the 16th century throughout the UK. Here in the U.S., commercial breweries were established and grew with the influx of German and Czech immigrants, especially in places like Milwaukee, St. Louis, and New York. Earlier this year, we did an episode on the centennial of the Prohibition, and one of the aspects that we talked about was the xenophobia that anti-alcohol crusaders capitalized on. They used the anti-German sentiment of World War I to fuel perceptions that America's largely German brewing industry was a threat. One temperance politician had argued, quote, We have German enemies in this country, and the worst of all our German enemies, the most treacherous, the most menacing, are Pabst, Schlitz, Blatz, and Miller. And for a long time, the beer industry has been dominated by these big breweries that we all know. But about 50 years ago, a new movement began that would become known as craft beer. And over the last 10 years or so, you've seen, no doubt, that craft beers have just blossomed. Consider these numbers. In 1987, craft beers were considered to represent less than one-tenth of one percent of the beer market. Today, craft beer comprises 20% of the more than $100 billion market. And in 1984, there were less than 50 breweries in the United States, and today there are nearly 10,000. Many of these breweries are small and independent craft brewers who are represented and supported by the Brewers Association. Here to talk to us more about the history of craft beer is our new friend, Paul Gatza. Paul is the Senior Vice President of the Professional Brewing Division of the Brewers Association. He's been with the association since 1998, and before serving the professional brewers, he represented the homebrewers segment of the BA's membership. 
Hey, Paul, welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason, and uh, hello to all your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, definitely don't want to spend all of our time uh, talking about the current environment and uh, excited to talk to you about the history of, of craft beer. But as we go through this moment and are living through history, uh, I'll start by asking, how is COVID affecting uh, different segments of the craft beer industry? Uh, you know, it's uh, hitting it pretty hard right now, uh, particularly the businesses that rely on on-premise sales, the brew pubs, the tap rooms uh, out there. Um, you know, for a beer lover, the best thing you can do is to seek out beer from the breweries you love to keep those sales flowing. Uh, many brewers are in survival mode today. <clears throat> a good resource is craftbeer.com that has a killer list of brewers that have shifted to go and delivery sales. Uh, the beer industry is more fortunate in one way than a lot of others. The federal government time and again uh, declared beverage alcohol as food, um, such as mm-hmm. in the Food, and, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, the Bioterrorism Act, the Food Safety Modernization Act. So breweries are therefore essential businesses, and many are allowed limited operations today. But a lot of the brew pubs and tap rooms have had to lay off employees to preserve cash in order to survive. Uh, many will be tapping the Small Business Administration loans uh, to help get through these next couple of months. Uh, the packaging brewers are generally doing okay as people seem to be loading up the pantry with beer and yeah. other beverage alcohol. But like a lot of sectors, times are really tough. Yeah, and that, that's a great point you make. So is that, is that the case in all 50 states, Paul, that, uh, that those, those smaller breweries can, can deliver? Or is it regulated by uh, state? We, uh, the state guilds have done a good job of educating the governor's offices. So as stay-at-home orders have gone into play, uh, generally breweries are uh, allowed not to host people into their establishments, but like curbside-to-go sales um, have been pretty common. The one state that uh, we're working on right now that didn't come and see breweries as essential is uh, Nevada, and we're working on that uh, right now. But Nevada, uh, if you're a tap room in Nevada, you've got no way to access the market right now. So you're gotcha. pretty much dead in the water. Yeah. <clears throat> well, hopefully that'll turn around for them. So taking taking a step back, um, obviously it, it feels like certainly from my perspective as a craft beer lover that it's been kind of a renaissance uh, period for craft beer. I mean, there's just there's so many choices on the shelves, and you know, so many different you know kinds of beers from from all different areas of the country. Um, but how has this kind of come about? I mean, you've been in the in the industry now for for over 20 years. How, how would you kind of describe sort of the origin story of craft beer in America as we know it, and how has it evolved over over time? Um, they really started with two main threads. Uh, Fritz Maytag uh, bought the Anchor Brewing Company in 1965, and then in 1971 he changed the recipes to produce beer made from 100% barley malt as the sugar source. Uh, beer in this country was largely made with adjunct grains like rice or corn to supplement barley. Uh, the result of adjunct beers was a beer with lighter flavor and body, and there really wasn't a lot to the beer back then. Um, but beers made with barley could be full-bodied and also allow the exploration of a whole bunch of different beer styles. Um, the ingredients used was an important demarcation as other entrepreneurs uh, started up later last century. 
the second major thread in early craft was started by a man named Jack McAuliffe uh, with New Albion Brewing Company in 1976. Uh, Small-scale professional brewing equipment did not exist for purchase at that time. Uh, so what McAuliffe did was he welded his own gear together out of used dairy tanks. And many of uh, craft brewing's pioneers, like Ken Grossman at Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, had to fabricate their own equipment. Um, uh, so it was, um, it re there really was no place to get any gear. Um, in terms of uh, the, the, the word craft brewing, uh, the earliest publication of that term uh, that I know about was in uh, the New Brewer magazine in 1984 uh, in an article by Vince Catoni called Craft Brewing Comes of Age. Um, he uses phrases craft brewing scene, craft brewery, and craft brewing in, in that piece. So that's really where that, that whole bit started. Yeah, and as, and as I understand it, Paul, your association formed after, like at a time, it was actually illegal to make beer at home. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Um, uh, a lot of the early home brewers uh, um, uh, were not able to do that. Home brewing was, um, when prohibition was ended in 1933, uh, home brewing was um, not considered legal at that point, and really it took... Um, uh, the Carter administration uh, to push through a bill in 1978 that um, legalized home brewing, depending if the state allowed it. So then uh, we took uh, our early association took on uh, the project of trying to get home brewing legalized in all 50 states. Yeah, and was home was home brewing? Did that become a catalyst for helping then essentially seed the explosion of all these craft breweries, which are obviously now professional? Did a lot of them start as home projects that then evolved from sort of a stay-at-home amateur hobby to then becoming professional? Absolutely, um, that's where uh, people learned uh, about the process and uh, got some of their technical chops, where they could then. Um, you know, build it up to more of a commercial scale. You know, the world at that point, there was a lot more international travel going on or people in the military who were maybe stationed in Germany or England would uh, taste some of the beers there. They'd come back home to the States and not be able to find beers like they uh, could find over there. So what they did was they started brewing their own. And uh, then some of them took their home brewing passion, became professional brewers. Others have been home brewing uh, you know, over the decades, uh, just you know, staying at it, making what they want to drink. Um, so that's that's uh, homebrewing definitely was a catalyst for the modern craft brewing industry, and um, a little less so today. But um, if anybody who would started a brewery from before about 2010, 99% um, of them were homebrewers. Huh, interesting. And uh, as the industry has gotten bigger and, and more established, and of course, as it started to take more market share from the beer industry as a whole, um, I know one of the, the, the themes has, has been, of course, the consolidation and also the big, you know, the big, the big brewers, you know, the ABs and, and Millers of the world that have bought some of these um, smaller breweries or have, you know, developed the brands that are positioned as craft beer. Um, and I know that uh, I've read some of uh, your articles that, that sort of talk about that confusion in the marketplace. So for our listeners, how do you really define 
craft beer and what are the distinctions in terms of um, those smaller uh, brewers we're talking about compared to um, to those that might be part of a, the portfolio of a much larger uh, conglomerate? You know, in the early days, uh, craft brewing was more thought of as by what the product uh, was made of. If it was a barley beer, 100% barley or barley and wheat, then it was considered a, uh, a, a craft beer in the company, a craft brewer. But that really shifted in the early 2000s where ownership became a, more of a focus of what mattered between craft brewers and non-craft brewers. Now, ownership by a large brewer uh, gave brands that they've acquired advantages that small brewers didn't have, such as access to distribution, access to markets, and access to raw materials. Um, you know, craft brewers continued to seek out different beer styles and different methods and started using some of the simpler sugars like honey and Belgian candy sugar and maple syrup. And uh, then corn and rice became tools in the brewer's cabinet. So really the ingredient side of it became less important, but it was more the ownership side of it became more important because the large brewers have uh, definite market advantages uh, there. Um, so one of the tricky pieces now is for, for the beer drinker is if, uh, if they care, if their, you know, company that they drink beer from is, uh, a small and independent, uh, craft brewer, it's hard to really find that out unless you, you know, do some searching online, um, because there's, that information isn't readily available on the label uh, unless you uh, unless the brewer uh, puts the independent craft brewer seal, which only independent craft brewers can use. That's the overturned upside down bottle that uh, you see uh, on packaging uh, both uh, the cartons as well as a lot of cans and bottles out there. Huh. Interesting. That's good to know. And. Given this new um, this new normal, as everyone now says, uh, the new term, the new normal. Um, <clears throat> given where we are, and, and obviously the rapidly changing economic environment that we're all in together, um, what might you expect is going to happen for the industry? What might uh, what might we expect uh, to happen based on uh, perhaps what the industry went through with the Great Recession? Um, you know, past recessions came at times when craft brewing was growing, and they slowed the growth of craft brewing significantly. Um, but craft continued to grow throughout. In the 2008-2009 recession, um, we saw craft brewing uh, growing at about 12% a year. And then uh, nine months before the recession really kicked off, uh, we started to see craft slowing uh, in growth from down to about 3%. So I'd always kind of thought that maybe craft sales growth declines could be a harbinger of future hard times. And I was even going to adjust my financial strategy if that ever happened again. But uh, the recession we're headed into in spring 2020 is a different animal altogether in that the on-premise market of bars and restaurants where craft historically does really well is going through a systematic shutdown of sales outlets. So Crappers are screaming for that survival today and, you know, through pubs, taprooms, shifting to, to go and delivery sales where they can. Draft beer sales in the United States are pretty much disappearing right now. Um, craft breweries are getting hit hard, but if you, you want the uh, local brewery to survive, there's no, no good time to see if you're doing on-site sales or uh, where you can get that beer. And even when the stay-at-home orders are lifted, social distancing will 
reduce the seats in restaurants and tap rooms until there's a vaccine vaccine and this is bad this is new territory for us and you know we don't know what really what the future is going to hold um hopefully it will uh we'll get a solution soon yeah well and to your point you know with past recessions and certainly 2008 was like this there was these sort of you know leading and lagging indicators and um you know, of course, no one, no one needs to be reminded that we just basically fell off a cliff. You know, it's just it's it's happened so quickly, and uh, you know, ho- hopefully it will will not last too long if we can get through this with with social distancing. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty surreal to just go from one extreme to another so quickly. Yep. Now, uh, one of the if you go way back in history to uh, the Great Recession. Um, uh, uh, brewing was one of the ideas that was thrown out there as a way to help pull the economy out of it um, by first allowing beer to be made again in 1930. Oh, you're talking about in the, you mean um, in the Great Depression? Yeah, the Great Depression. Uh, so that was uh, um, that you know that was beer was definitely a, a big part of the recovery that started in uh, the, the mid 30s there. Um, so maybe there's a way beer can pull us out of this one too. Well, if not, it certainly will make us uh, feel uh, feel a little more comforted going through it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and, and on that note, one 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 question I always like to ask, and and given our topic, it's a it's a perfect question in some respects. Is you know, if you're if you're sitting in a bar and you're having a craft beer, and what's one of your favorite stories from your 20 years in the industry? Oh, you know, I've been to uh, a lot of really great parties and uh, seen. Uh, a lot of really good times, um, and there are a lot of people uh, involved in these stories uh, that have some stories on me that, that I might might not want to tell one of those while I'm still around. But uh, um, I want to tell one about uh, homebrewing um, because these so many at home, people are at home these days, and the signs are of a resurgence in homebrewing. Um, so I was working on the bottling line of Boulder Beer back in 1993, and I'd uh, bottle in the mornings and then clean around the packaging area, the cooler, the cellar, the brew house in the afternoon. And I was cleaning uh, loose grain off a shelf one day, and um, it had fallen out of a sack or something and needed to be swept up. And it wasn't barley or wheat or oats. I asked one of my coworkers, and they couldn't identify it either. Uh, so I uh, took it home, brewed a batch of, at home comprised of about a third barley, a third wheat, and a third of of this mystery grain and my neighbor had some ripe raspberries on his bushes well i made the beer and it was absolutely delicious it was one of the best beers i ever made and about six months later it was i figured out that that grain was rye which was rarely used in beers in the u.s at that time but is now fairly common um so i'd say if anyone out there has ever thought about making their own beer uh it's pretty fun it's not too hard to make really good beer and now may be a good time to try it all right, love that. And as a rye drinker, I can totally, uh, totally appreciate that. So, and uh, are there any new trends, uh, styles of beer that you think are uh, that we should be keeping our eye out that are going to be the next big thing? Um, you know, uh, uh, in the last decade, what we've seen is India Pale Ale really jumped to about a quarter of all craft beers. So, yeah. you know, basically, a six pack of every case was an IPA, and, we, and then we saw that style really splinter into a variety of sub-styles like uh, West Coast IPA, Black IPA, um, Session IPA. Uh, uh, really, I think um, 
something to watch out for is uh, craft brewers are getting excellent at making uh, pale lagers. Uh, so whereas the big brewers have acquired some brands and are kind of playing where craft had a lot of its success, uh, now craft is playing in some of the styles that the big brewers had uh, had you know had a lot of success in the past. So pay attention to craft brewers who are making uh, light lagers, Mexican lagers, uh, American lagers, pilsners. Some of these paler styles that uh, the craft brewers are really doing an excellent job with, with uh, a little bit more flavor than what you've seen the uh, the large brewers do. And uh, um, I've been really impressed with how good some of those beers are coming on. Uh, you know, sour beers uh, continue to be showing uh, growth. It's a small uh, segment of the uh, craft brewing world, but the people who love sour beers really love sour beers, and they continue to uh, show growth throughout and uh, I have a feeling that stouts are going to come back in a, in a bigger way uh, going forward. Yeah, it's funny. I'm a big IPA guy, and uh, and I definitely have been on the IPA train for a long time. But to your point, I, I started drinking a lot more stouts uh, over this, this past winter. And uh, it's your, your tip about lagers is good. So as the, uh, as the weather's getting warmer and people tend to maybe drink a little bit lighter beer, uh, that'll be good for, good for us to keep an eye out for. So, Well, Paul, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time and your insights and uh, wishing the wishing the best for the industry and uh and stay stay safe and keep it clean thanks jason cheers thanks again to paul and now as a segue i suggest that you grab a great craft beer from your fridge or go buy some curbside from one of your local craft breweries and support them in your local economy And then if you haven't already, take 15 minutes to fill out and submit your census questionnaire. Last week was census day, and it's that time of the decade that the U.S. government conducts the admirable work of documenting our national population and determining how many of us there are and where we are. It's a simple concept, but a very hard task and one that our country has been doing for over 230 years. The first census ever conducted was actually by the Babylonian Empire nearly 6,000 years ago. So uh, censuses are almost as old as beer. And the oldest surviving census was conducted by China's Han Dynasty 2,000 years ago, also probably while drinking beers. And it showed a population of 57.7 million people living in 12.4 million households. The city of Shindu had the largest population in China with 282,000 people. And even cultures who did not have written languages um, created a census. In 1400, the Inca used a system of knots on strings made from llama or alpaca hair to record data. Later in the 1700s and 1800s, Western European countries used censuses to tax their colonies, but those countries also tended to avoid conducting censuses of their own. The nobility in countries like France and England didn't want to lose power to central government, so they wanted to keep information more vague. And then later in 1958, the United Nations put in place a set of principles which are used to apply some international standards for censuses. That's a hard word to say, censuses. Try saying that five times fast. Anyway, 
the first census here in the States was done in 1790. The census was one of the first things that was established in our constitution. Article one, section two of our constitution requires that the government conduct a census of the population every 10 years. So the first census asked the name of the white male householder and then white males 16 or older, white males under 16, and then the names of white females, and then all other free people in the households, and then slaves. And slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. We literally counted human beings as only 60% of a person, and Native Americans, incidentally, were not counted until 1870. So this year, in spite of the pandemic, the census grinds on. Last week, as I said, was Census Day, which is really kind of a confusing milestone because it's not a deadline. It's more of a, of a level set. So again, if you haven't already filled out your census, you absolutely should and can. Um, you can go to uh, census.gov, um, which is actually an awesome website with lots of interesting content. And um, here to talk to us a little bit more about the history of the census is Ted Widmer, who wrote an article last May in The New Yorker called How the Census Changed America. Ted is a historian at the Macaulay Honors College of the City University of New York. Among many other projects over the years, he is the author of several books, and he has a new book that is out this week called Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington, which recounts the journey of President Lincoln to Washington, D.C. to be inaugurated. Ted, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to, Jason. So um, the, the 2020 census is coming out at, at one of the more unique and challenging times in our, our recent history given COVID-19, um, but I'm guessing it's probably not the first time that uh, the census has been conducted during a challenging time. Um, from your experience, what are some of the other notable times the census was conducted during a time of, of particular challenge? Well, we've never not conducted it since the beginning of the country. Um, so, you know, it continued through, well, it just preceded the Civil War. There was one in 1860, which was actually a very important census, and I, I would argue contributed to the cause of the Civil War, actually. Um, but then in um, throughout the two world wars, uh, again, it didn't hit perfectly, but it preceded and followed World War One and World War Two. And it never has um, it never has been delayed. It's always been done on that year with a zero uh, ending, and that was that was by the uh, intentional uh, decree of the founding fathers, who, in, in addition to all their other problems, decided that they were going to give themselves this challenge. And it's uh, very moving to see that there was not much of a U.S. government, but they still they took this so seriously that they sent someone out. They sent U.S. Marshals out in 1790, only one year into the presidency of George Washington, and did a pretty good census. What are what are some of the lesser known or, or perhaps misunderstood ways that census data is used? Well, the most important way is apportionment of representatives in Congress. So, if your state's population goes up over 10 years, you get more more members of Congress. And if it goes down, you get, you get fewer. Um, but then all kinds of federal expenditures are, are tied to it. And, and 
federal expenditures go all over the place. They go to highway construction and public schools and public hospitals and um, benefits like um, food stamps, school lunches. So really everything the federal government pays for, which is a ton, is tied to how many people live in a state. Yeah, and I would assume that that's also how is 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 the census publicly available? It is. Um, I mean, it's it's an incredible trove of information for anyone studying any period of American history. But uh, mm-hmm. private information given to the census takers is is kept private for seventy two years. So the idea is um, when the census taker comes to your house you are supposed to have confidence that you can say the truth, how many people live in your house. It's, we can get into this. There's some controversy about what words to use, whether you use the word citizen or not, and that was a controversy in the last year. Mm-hmm. But um, you are supposed to confidently say how many persons, not citizens, meaning if undocumented immigrants live in your house, you are, you are supposed to say uh, how many and then that information goes into the accurate count, but isn't is not released publicly for 72 years because uh, that's that's about the span of a human life. And so uh, the idea is you your personal information should not be available, but they do want to know how many people live in each apartment or house in, in the country. And I can imagine, you know, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, that just the the process of conducting the census to, um, you know, I think as Pew Research described it, simply count every person and make sure they're only being counted once. Right. <laughs> they said, right. Count, count, find every person and where they are and only count them once. And that, right. that must have been quite a marvel, you know, a uh, hundred years ago. But, but now, yeah. uh, to your point, we sort of take that for, for granted. Um, how has the methodology for conducting the census evolved over time? A, a great question. Well, it just, it got complicated quickly because the population was growing so fast. So they needed to hire more people it moved around from one government office to another. It was in the State Department for a while, and then in the, the uh, interior, uh, and, and it's now in commerce. And um, it was human beings writing down information on paper for a long time. But in the 1870s and 1880s, it became so hard to count all of these millions of people coming in, in including huge numbers of immigrants that uh, there were a, a call went out to devise a faster system for counting. And that was the, the biggest change in methodology until now. We have a big one happening right, right now. But in 1890, a genius of data tabulation named Herman Hollerith, who was a census employee, uh, devised a, a much faster way of counting. He had seen train conductors using hole punchers and punch cards walking down or they would punch a ticket. If you're a commuter, you might have like a, a piece of paper with 30 rides for a month and the conductor will just punch a day and you're, you're paid for it for that day. And he thought he could use that system and create a punch card that would have all the questions that a census taker would need to know from a household. And so in just a few seconds, the puncher, the, the hole puncher could go through each card for a family 
and gather all the data. And that that worked incredibly well. And Hollerith then left the U.S. Census and founded a data tabulation corporation co- company first. And later that became the parent company of IBM and the, the famous IBM punch card, which is really the beginning of, you know, huge modern data tabulation and, and the, the modern computer comes out of that. Excellent. And is 2020 the first census where, um, uh, where people can um, answer, fill it out online? Yes. So it's a really big new step for everybody. And there's so much uncertainty right now because, I mean, it's everywhere you you look. With the coronavirus, obviously, we are um, afraid to open the door. And there still is an an element of that in the taking of a census. When people don't answer or go online, they, they, they send out human beings to talk to human beings. And so that's a huge challenge is can they get in the door to ask these questions. But um, this is the first time online and that's a a second challenge. And it's a challenge in in many, many ways. There are questions about the reliability of the count. Um, Australia had an online census in 2016 and it crashed. So there are fears of bugs, accidental bugs getting in the system, and then there are fears of intentional bugs getting in the system from foreign actors, uh, Russia. And and so there, there's a lot of anxiety about the 2020 census. Yeah. And you raise an interesting point about the the topic of, of trust. And um how how has the census been trusted or, or mistrusted over the years? Have there been specific uh, ones that were more uh, controversial than others? Well, that that too is a controversy of our moment right now. Um, there, we're in. I, I I forgot to say that, but that's another element of um, instability right now. Is trust has really fallen a lot um, for most of our history the knock at the door from the census taker was no big deal. And to answer it accurately was a, you know, kind of act of civic confidence. It was like voting or paying your, your local tax. It was just something everybody did. It was part of democracy, but uh, there there are all these newfound fears that um, some are the growing distrust of government generally, which has been, it's all over the place. It's, it, it comes out of fears of government conspiracies, everything from Area 51 to the Kennedy assassin, assassination. But it's more specifically been fanned by uh, the right, the right part of the right wing, I guess is what I would say, who generally paint the U.S. government um, as as a as a malign actor. And so to give your information to the government feels more more scary than it used to. But that feeling was intensified uh, a, a year ago when the Trump administration tried to get a, a small question added into the set of questions asked. And that question was, um, are you or are the members of this household citizens of the United States? And that was instantly um, perceived by experts in the census from from both Republican and Democratic administrations as a kind of poison pill question that would scare 
a lot of people who have shaky citizenship status, um, not just someone whose who's own citizenship might be in doubt, but anyone who knows someone or is related to someone. So it might be you have a cousin who recently immigrated and you wouldn't want to answer that question or even answer any questions from the census taker. So um, that went up the federal court system and it was deemed unconstitutional at every stage. And then it finally went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court agreed that it was not permissible to ask that question because the, uh, it's actually in the Constitution, it's in Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, that there will be a census every 10 years um, asking how many persons, not citizens, live here. So it's all people. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and, and presumably the reason why they would want that question added would be to discourage more um, more minorities or immigrants to to respond yes. to the census? Was that, that, that was the, the conventional wisdom? That's the conventional wisdom. Um, there, this was coming from Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, and at one point he claimed that it, he wanted to make sure we were um, – we were enforcing the civil rights acts of the middle of the 1960s, but that wasn't plausible. Most people felt that was um, absurd even because he had never shown any interest in the civil rights movement. And in fact, there's a a pretty long paper trail showing a lot of interest uh, among certain people who um, have the president's ear or, or have had it. Steve Bannon being one, and Chris Kobach, the former uh, Secretary of State of Kansas, who have thought really hard about how to depress voter voter registration, um, voter counting in in every way. And if you if you have a lower count in a crowded city, cities tend to be democratic. Uh, then you will be giving more political power to states that are more wide open, like Kansas, where Chris Kobach is from. Mm. And has there been a history of that in the United States in in other periods where there's been sort of specific political pressure uh, to try to uh, de-emphasize certain um, segments of the population to participate? Well, well, there certainly have been controversial uh, ways of counting, um, never as partisan as we've seen it in the last two years. Never Republicans having a completely different strategy from Democrats. That that's new, but uh, there, there there have been strange ways of counting African Americans and Native Americans, and so that that too gets into our our history as a not not as united people as as we would like to think of ourselves um right the three-fifths compromise the three-fifths compromise exactly so um how to count african americans was a, a pretty difficult question for the first meetings of the founders um and they didn't always decide the same way they're there is, you know, there is a U.S. government of sorts before the Constitution under the Articles of Confederation, and they, in, in those years, they, they talked about this, and the South loved having African Americans counted as a whole person when they were trying to get 
um, representatives apportioned because they tended to have lower populations in southern states, so they wanted to count their African Americans, but they didn't want to count them when um, sometimes they they apportioned tax burdens according to population also. So Southerners wanted the credit for the black population when it gave them representatives. They didn't want those numbers counted when it might lead to a higher tax bill. So the way this finally worked out was the odious three-fifths of a person compromise, which um, we learned about in high school history, and which uh, basically inflated Southern political power for a long time. And because these, these were certainly not voters, these were largely, there were few free people of color, but overwhelmingly they were slaves with no political power and really no civic identity of any kind. They didn't have last names. They couldn't get married in the eyes of the state. Um, their birth dates and death dates were not generally recorded the way white Americans were. That has made it very difficult, but not impossible for African Americans now to do the same kind of family history that all people like to do. Um, it's yeah. really challenging because if your family was from a southern state and they were slaves, it's very hard to know birth dates and marriage dates and death dates. Yeah, and it's 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 just hard to looking back on it. It's just so hard to imagine or process. Just what could be more demeaning than being counted yeah. three fifths of a person? <laughs> well, my, um, my census research a year ago, I I thought it was a kind of obscure topic. I mean, I like obscure topics, but um, the more I got into it, I thought, this is so meaty. This is like the heart of American history is in this oh, yeah. seemingly obscure topic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how, do, you, do you know how the census process here in the U.S. compares versus other countries? You mentioned uh, you mentioned Australia as an example. Yes, I, I don't have um, detailed knowledge of of Australia's approach or, or any country's current approach. I, I would imagine that we all um, have certain things in, in common, but when the U.S. started in 1790, it was way ahead of the pack. Most places, including large European uh, countries or empires like Russia, for example, didn't didn't conduct censuses. They had no idea how many people lived in, in their kingdoms. Um, often in, in England, which we, you know, we derive a lot of our customs from England, they would do a kind of rough count at the beginning of a, a sovereign's uh, uh, realm. So if a new king, is, if, if there's a coronation, one of the things that would often happen would be a count of how many people live in the domains of the king or queen. And so there were certain ways that we imitated England, but the idea of a country with, with no king counting itself was a very brave display of um, self-confidence. Americans were saying democracy is, is not just our, our right. It's not just an idealistic thing. It's, it's also a set of rules that we were, we're going to show the world how to do this. And it, it, it will include the absolute necessity of counting ourselves because that's the beginning of self-representation of, of figuring out who goes to Congress. You can't do that until you know how many 
people live in each place. So we, we were a kind of model for the for the world. Very interesting. Well, thank you, Ted. Um, uh, a story uh, or a, qu- a question I, I always a question I always like to ask at the end. If you had only one story to tell in a bar about the U.S. Census over a cocktail, what might it be? I think I may have um, blown this question by giving the answer already, but I, I think it's Herman Hollerith inventing the IBM punch card uh, and, and really helping to usher in the computer in the 20th century yeah. by by seeing a train conductor punching the holes in the in the t- tickets and seeing that's that's a really good way to tabulate data. Yeah. It's also a great uh, it's a great connection uh, literally between uh, the, the railroad industry of the 19th century and then the uh, information you know the technology uh, revolution of, uh, of the 20th century too. So it's a neat little nexus. Yeah. There. Uh, and I know that uh, in your new book you you explore some of that. So um, really cool. I, I do. I'm a I'm a train nerd as well as a census nerd. I, I love it. <laughs> so, well, you know, it's, it's good. It's good to it's good to hang in subcultures. So that's good. Yeah. Are you yeah, also exactly. are you also a Civil War reenactor? <laughs> not yet. Um, not yet. Maybe, <laughs> I got a few years left. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how how Civil War reenacting uh, would work in the uh, in the age of social distancing. But uh, you know, maybe maybe we can. Get yeah. Into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, man. Well, Ted, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, and uh, best of luck with your new book. Thanks, Jason. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. That's our show. Thanks again to Ted Widmer and to Paul Gatza for joining me. Make sure that you fill out your census and submit it if you haven't done so already. Drink a great beer in celebration of National Beer Day. Go buy the new book, Lincoln on the Verge. Stay home if you can and wash your hands. Stay safe, everyone.